Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is where we'll begin. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In 1964, activist Jack Weinberg said, Never trust anyone over 30. He's now 77. He's five to six years older than the youngest post-war baby boomers. As some of you may recall, it was in the 1960s that a phrase popped up and began to be used. It's used pretty commonly now, but it had never really been applied before, and that phrase is generation gap. For the first time, our culture, our country, began to recognize a a true gap, a, a space, a distance between generations, the inability of one generation to communicate with the other generation, the younger generation saying the older generation does not understand us, and the older generation saying, huh? You know, looking at the younger. And we have begun to recognize that even prior to the 60s, every generation, every succeeding generation, that there tends to be a gap, a shift. Now some generations can go on where, where there's stability in the world over long periods of time, but in the upheaval of the world that we live in these days, it changes so rapidly that one generation's life experience is very different than another generation's life experience. I was just thinking back, just in my lifetime, It's been 52 years since the Beatles played Shea Stadium. It's been 36 years since MTV first aired. 26 years since the launch of the World Wide Web. 23 years since the birth of AOL and You've Got Mail. And 10 years, already 10 years since the startup of YouTube. And those are very different, unique moments in time, events, if you will, things that have happened among so many that are rapidly happening in this fast-paced information age. And now, the greatest divergence between generations seems to have appeared, even more than the generation gap of the 60s. If you look at the difference between the life experience of baby boomers and Gen Xers, and there was a gap between them, but if you just lump them together, we're talking to everybody who's 38 and older. You know, the the pre-1979 people, take a look at them, and then the millennials and the iGen generation, iGen is teenagers up to the age of 18 now, millennials 18 to about 37. The difference between these groups is vast. There's a journalist by the name of Bruce Fierstein who developed a list. I pulled a few things off of it. I thought it was interesting and and humorous at times. A list of some of the differences. Let me share these with you. Biggest life-altering event. For the older generation, baby boomers and Gen Xers, 
Biggest life-altering event, Neil Armstrong's walk on the moon. That was moon-shattering. I mean, it was it blew our minds. It was incredible. For the younger generation, biggest life-altering event, the release of the iPhone 6. So you see the difference, truly, with what's going on. In the older generation, the living situation was back to the city, baby. For the younger generation, down the hall from mom and dad. Most trusted news source for the older generation, Dan Rather and Ted Koppel. For the younger generation, YouTube and Reddit. Mode of communication for the older generation, email. For the younger, Snapchat. The defining condition for the older generation, the defining condition was attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. For the younger generation, gluten intolerance and peanut allergies. I like this one. Biggest entertainment expenditure. For the older generation, $5,000 on platinum Rolling Stones tickets. For the younger generation, $26.95 on Minecraft. So there's a big difference there. Some of you are going, what's Minecraft? Exactly. (laughs) Deepest fear. For the older generation, it was retirement. For the younger generation, it's low batteries. Key question of life for the older generation, what's it all mean? And for the younger generation, what's a landline? So, differences between the two, and and obviously that list was compiled by somebody who is of the older generation because he's poking fun at the younger. But the main issue in any generation gap is, again, the inability of one generation to understand the other. Isn't it good news to know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever? Amen. That there is no such thing as a generation gap with Jesus. I mean, there's never been a generation that He didn't love and understand. God spoke to us in His Son so that we could be certain of His empathy for us. But still some people see what we could call a creation gap. A God who is so vast and so distant and so other, how could He possibly get us? How could He truly understand us? Oh, I know His Word is out there, but I've read some of His Word, Some one might say, and He's just too harsh, too demanding. To which I reply, well, you didn't read too much of His Word, did you? But yet that perspective or that perception is out there. A God that is detached and cannot fully understand the human experience. I suggest to you that the passage before us might explain why some people sense a creation gap, a distance between themselves and God. But for now, let me just put it this way. Communication is best received in person. We have a standard for our church staff. We don't always do it perfectly, but we do our best. And that's not to respond, especially with emotional things, via email or text. But to try to respond in person. Because when you get face-to-face with someone, it changes everything. You know, when you just fire off a letter or an email or a text or a Snapchat a chat with, which disappears after 30 seconds. I mean, you know, how can you really get the heart of what the person is trying to say to you? Have you ever sent a text to somebody and they get really upset and you're like, what? 
I didn't mean, no, that's not what I meant at all. That's because words are best understood face to face. With that in mind, follow this through. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word is a sharp sword. Words can be sharp. You know, the person who said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. <laughs> Let a cloistered life. That is so untrue. We used to say that when I was a kid. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But it still hurt when you were being made fun of, when someone was calling you names. It still hurt. You say that to try and make yourself think it doesn't. Well, it does. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Hey, words don't break bones, but they can sure break hearts. Now words can also mend hearts as well. Words can also be restorative. You know, sticks and stones, they can't convict the conscience like words can. Or stir the emotions like words do. Or reveal sin like words can. Or sanctify a life like words can do. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. His word is required if you, if I would be sanctified. If I would be cleansed and and made after the image of the Son. If my life would be cleaned up, I need the Word of God. This Word does that. It sanctifies and more. But listen, aside from certain mostly supernatural encounters, for 4,000 years, all mankind had was the Word of God. Now, the Word is perfect. So there should be no problem there. The problem is we are not. So you have a perfect word coming to imperfect ears. And that's why there's a gap. That's where there's the misunderstanding. God gave His word to communicate His heart to us. And again, His word is perfect. But it was misunderstood. It is still misunderstood by people who have not met God who haven't come face to face with Him. God spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32 46, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today. Warning you, he said. Which you shall command your sons to observe carefully all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. But as as Moses previously warned, the perfect word of God could also be the downfall of the people. It could also be their death. Hey, this word is good. But this word that convicts and this word that is perfect lays bare that which is imperfect. Go back and read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Fascinating. God said, hey, when you come into the land, here's what I want you to do. I want half the people up on Mount Gerizim, and I want the other half of the people up on Mount Ebal. And Moses, you're to stand in the middle, in the valley in between. I've stood there, and they're, they're, they're pretty steep mountains with a valley right there. 
And Moses would stand in the middle and proclaim blessings to which everybody on Mount Gerizim would say, Amen, Hallelujah, we receive those. And then he also pronounced curses, which everybody on Mount Ebal said, Amen, Hallelujah, we accept those. Blessings and curses all coming out of the Word of God. And the blessing or the curse would all depend upon how the person heard and applied the Word. When what you have is just a word, whether it's spoken or written or emailed or messaged or texted or posted or whatever, it is easy to end up cut up. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. These two verses, verses 12 and 13, are often preached by themselves. They ought not be. I want you to think through these with me. First of all, understand that the Word of God is living. That is, the Word of God is alive. If you're a note taker, jot that down. This Word is alive. There is no other Word like it. No book in our library is alive, my friends. This one is. The verb for alive is zao. Zao, it's where we get the name Zoe. Zoe means alive or lively. Uh, Zao, to be alive. It's, It's the verb form of the Word. And Jesus used it. Same word when He says... I am the living water. When he says, I am the bread of life. When he refers to himself as the living one. I like that. The living one. The the zone. You want to be in the zone? (laughs) The living one is zone in the Greek. the, The noun form. And the angels used that phrase for Jesus when the women showed up at the tomb on the resurrection day. Luke 24, 5. Why are you looking for the living one? Among the dead. He's not here. He is zone. He's the living one. And Jesus said of Himself in Revelation 1.17, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I am the zone. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. The living one. This Word is alive. Jesus Himself is the living one. Jesus is the Word. And so this is the Word. And the point is, it's not a dead book you hold in your hands. It is not a dead, lifeless book that we study. It's not like the sacred texts of the Jedi. You've seen the most recent movie. Interesting. This God-breathed Word is living and vibrant today, as living and vibrant as it ever was, and still is able to do so much to a life, in a life. I was thinking, driving here this morning, I often you know, have my little thoughts on the way here, and as I was coming in, I was thinking, this is, as I prayed, yet another Sunday. It's just another Sunday. What do you want to do with this today, Lord? What are the expectations we all have as we're driving up the driveway to gather together in the sanctuary? Do we want to be entertained? You know, do we want to come out of here just a little bit encouraged? What, what, why are we here? Why are we coming? I'm thinking all this stuff, and the word that came to me, unless we use this all the time, was revelation. I don't want to be entertained. I want the truth to be revealed. I want something to happen to and in my heart. Sometimes we don't even know it has. Which is why faithfulness is so important and long haul Christianity matters because God, like building blocks, uses Sunday after Sunday, teaching after teaching, to develop us and to grow His Word in us. 
But this is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Deuteronomy 32.47 again. And God said, Isaiah 55.11, My word will be, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in that for which I sent it. And again, this living word is written down to direct us to the living one, Jesus Christ. For 4,000 years it was written to prepare this world and a people for the coming of Jesus, for the coming of Messiah. And now that He has come and returned to heaven, it is to draw us ever nearer to Him even now. But you know, if you go to the Bible only for self-help, it will cut you. It's sharp. Psalm 40, verse 7. Hebrews 10, verse 7. In the scroll of the book, Jesus says, it is written of me. John 5, 39. Yes, I know I've quoted this many times. Just search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify about me. This living Word is about the living One. So the Word is alive. But the Word is also active. Secondly, the Word is living and Active. That word active is energase. It's where we get our word energy. It's energetic. It's vibrant. It is not dull. It's not inert. These are working words that impact and change a heart by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. But again, there is no other book ever written like this one. One of the greatest errors that was made in some circles of Judaism, I think began to evolve after about 400 B.C. when the prophecies seemed to stop. Some began to believe, and some still do, that God went silent. Some even believed, like Nietzsche, God is dead. Well, Nietzsche's dead. God is alive. But you know what's really interesting? It has been subtly suggested, even in the organization of the Tanakh, that God slowly got quieter and quieter and quieter and then stopped speaking. What do you mean the Tanakh? The Tanakh, it's the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's the, it's the most uh, authoritative Hebrew Scriptures today. If you go into uh, a Jewish synagogue, the Tanakh, what they have, what we would call the Old Testament. I don't like that. I like Older Testament, if you will. But the Tanakh is all the books that we have in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. But they're organized differently. They're organized into three sections, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Torah being the first five books, the Nevi'im means the prophets, and Ketuvim means the writings. So, the first five books, the books of Moses, and then the prophets, and then the writings, and Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Tanakh. Tanakh. So, the word itself is an acronym. But if you look at the organization of it in, in a, a, what you would call a Jewish Bible today, What you would find is that it ends with the writings. The last 13 books of the Ketuvim read like a decrescendo of direct speech from God. It's very interesting the way it's laid out. In fact, the last book is 2 Chronicles and ends not with the voice of the king, but with the voice of a king, Cyrus, telling the people of Judah they can go back to Judea from Babylon. But not God speaking. It gets very, very quiet if you read in the organization 
of the Hebrew Scriptures today. Gang, the way it actually came down was very different. Very different. You see, if you look at it chronologically, the way God brought His Scriptures, the way God brought His Word in chronological sequence, God is the one who gets the last word at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. He loudly, He clearly says, Malachi 4 verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you to Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Period. Last word, God. Speaking. Loud and clear. Yeah, but Rick, I, I happen to know that Malachi was about 400 years before Jesus and, and there wasn't any major prophecy during that time that, that we can speak of. Okay, but then he sent Jesus. So God holds His breath for 400 years to let all of the Tanakh sink in and then the Word that's alive, the Word is active and in these last days He has spoken to us in Son. So yes, He sent Jesus. Jesus came, the loud and clear incarnation of Jesus Christ. Well, then what happened? Well, then ten days after He ascended back to heaven, Jesus, by His own Word, poured out His Spirit on all who would receive. God did not go silent. The Word did not cease to be active. And now, now, listen to this. Revelation chapter 1 Verse 10, John is writing, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I suggest to you that letter, these seven letters are for the whole church. We'll get there, Lord willing. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Has God gone silent? Absolutely not. And I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. The lampstands. Bible students, what are the lampstands? Do you know? The church. He tells us further down, the lampstands are a representation of the church. So imagine the church there, and he sees this one in the middle of the lampstands, like a son of man. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes, like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And His voice, His voice, His voice was like the sound of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars. Out of His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And His face was like the sun shining in its strength. That's Jesus. Where is He? In the middle of the lampstands. In the midst of the church, does that sound mute, dull, or disengaged? Does it sound like perhaps God has become passive? Or does it sound, as we are suggesting, like the Word is alive and the Word is active? Uh, The Word that we read and study is actively changing us, sanctifying us. But the Word of God, who is Jesus, is active in and among the churches. He is speaking today as He spoke yesterday. Because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He spoke yesterday, He speaks today, and He will be speaking forever. The Word is alive. The Word is is active. 
And the word is acutely accurate. That's number three. Acutely accurate. Back in Hebrews chapter 4, we note that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Two-edged means it cuts and it slices going in and coming out. Any way you move that thing, it's going to cut. It's going to slice. It slices. It dices. You know I mean? You could do a whole commercial on it. The sharp two-edged sword. I have knives at home, many of you do as well, that are very sharp. And they have a purpose. And I'll be cutting up apples. And I'll be thankful that I have a good, sharp knife to cut up apples so that I can have my dinner. Unless that good, sharp knife runs across my finger. (laughs) It's not the knife's fault. But the knife still cuts. Depending on how I use it. This is a sharp, sharp knife. A two-edged sword. A a makaira is the Greek word, which was a short sword, which was used primarily for hand-to-hand combat, or a large surgical knife for cutting and cleaning flesh. Sharper than any two-edged makaira. A tool that is designed to divide. It's intended to incise with sheer precision like that of a razor-sharp blade. And he says it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What does that mean exactly? Well, think that through. There's a poetic parallel going on here, a dualism, if you will, between the first and the second of each of these couplings. Soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intentions of the heart. Think of it this way. Soul is like joints, is like thoughts. Soul, joints, and thoughts. Same idea, same concept. The soul, which is our seat of reason, our our thinking, our mentality, the soul exercises the thoughts in the same way that the joints move and bend the body. The spirit and the marrow and the intentions of the heart, these are all synonymous. The spirit is like bone marrow, creating the vast majority of the blood cells in the body, comes from the bone marrow, giving sustenance to the body, pumped by the heart into the body. Spirit, marrow, and heart, it's the internal intentions. It's the marrow of our motivations. So what he's saying here, when he says it's piercing, it can divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intentions of the heart. The division right down the middle is between the outer workings of our lives and the inner life. And his word can divide between that. What we see is external and what's really internal. See, Jesus knew everything that was going on in the heart of man. John chapter 2 tells us. He didn't entrust himself to man because he knew the heart of man. We tend to think in terms of the external. We look on the external. We look for evidence of things, thoughts, intentions, and the heart based on what's happening externally. But the Word of God goes right up the middle and can divide out between both. The Word reveals not only our actions, but our motivations. Not only our soul man, but also our spirit man. Or woman. The word, acutely accurate. 
God's Word cuts through it all. Look at verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Verses 12 and 13, again, often preached by themselves, are not meant to be comforting. They are not meant to be encouraging. We use these and we say, yes, the Word, the Word. And I am a huge fan of the Word of God. You know this. Huge believer in what this powerful, active, and alive, and acutely accurate Word does. I love the Word of God. But this is not meant to be comforting. When he says there's no creature hidden from his sight. This Word will find you out. Listen to how he's describing this. He sees through it all. This is the one who's in the midst of the lampstand, so he's not fooled. He sees it. He's aware of it. He is fully engaged. He is fully aware. He's not blind to anyone. Now, this is not like the NSA or or FISA court or Zuckerberg. This is Jesus who is right in the middle of it all, and His Word lays us open and lays us bare before God, and we all will and must face Him. Think about that for a moment. Every human being will stand face to face with God. With Him with whom we have to do. Why do we have to do that? Because He's Creator and we are created. Because we belong to Him ultimately. Whether we've rebelled against Him or accepted Him or not, all that aside, we will stand before Him. Every person And when we do, we will be open and laid bare. What does that mean? Open is literally naked. It speaks of the barest of grain. Or completely unclothed. As Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Job, when he said that, was not, he was talking about not being able to bring anything with him or, or pack anything in. When he talked about being naked as an infant and then even in death, from birth to death, spiritually the reality is I can't hide a thing. I cannot hide from God. I'm open. He sees everything, every aspect of me, everything that I've done, everything that I have thought He can see. Now if that's making you uncomfortable, stay with me. Because we're not only open, we're also laid bare. We're not only naked, but we are laid bare. The word is trochalizo. It's where we get the word trachea. Why? Trochalizo, laid bare, was first of all a law enforcement term. It was kind of an early polygraph test. What they would do is they would take a knife, a sharp two-edged sword, if you will, strap it onto the chest of someone who was going to be interrogated a suspect, a prisoner, and they would stick it right there up into the flesh, so much so that if you move one way or the other, if you try to look down or away from your interrogator, you will get cut. And that was called trachalizo. The neck laid bare. It was a hunter's term. They would use trachalizo to describe the flaying open and opening up of an animal. I remember going out to a deer lease my uh, sophomore year of college. Cheryl and I drove out to, to spend a weekend with friends out there and at this deer lease in East Texas. 
And we came driving up the driveway, you know, and Cheryl's roommate was there and, and she's waving. And, and as we came in, the headlights at night focus on this barn off to the side of the house that we were staying in. And hanging right there in the door was a newly killed deer, completely flayed open and dripping blood. And I went, oh, that's nice. (laughs) Clearly someone's not having a happy Thanksgiving, because that was Thanksgiving weekend. Trocolizo, flayed, laid open. It was also an executioner's term, because literally, trocolizo means to bend back the neck. You would bend back the neck before chopping off the head. And all creatures will be naked, and will have the neck bent back before God. Naked and laid bare. Now, think about this. For all the love and promises and compassion of God written throughout the Tanakh, and the word of, of truth, this true word, this sharp sword, it still cuts and it divides. It is a serious surgical instrument. And when it's not handled right, it's going to cut. When the heart is not right, when the intentions are not right, when the attitude is not honest and open to God, this word is going to cut. And that's why we have a generation of people or generations of people on one side of of the divide saying, I don't want your Bible and I don't want your God. Because all they've ever heard is bits and pieces of the Word and when the heart's not ready to receive the Word, the Word cuts. And it can hurt. People say, ah, I don't don't want that. It's funny because people will say, that's why I don't like that Old Testament. It's too harsh. It's too judgmental. All those curses. Well, let me remind you all that Jesus said in John twelve forty eight, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. The words of Jesus are just as sharp an edge as the Hebrew Scriptures. Again, Revelation 1, 16, Out of his mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, are we getting how serious this really is? Verses 12 and 13 are not to be messed with. What it's describing with the Word of God is a serious thing. Active, alive, and acutely accurate. His Word cuts right through me, and I should, upon reading His Word, stand before God guilty, convicted, and ashamed. But I'm not. I am neither guilty nor am I convicted, nor am I ashamed. For you see, while verses 12 and 13 are absolutely true, they do not stand alone. Too many sermons stop with verse 13. But this is about the sword and the throne. The sword and the throne. Verse 14, therefore, therefore... Because of this sharp two-edged sword, this this cutting, even stinging at times word, this powerful, effective word. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? Jesus the Son of God. He is the confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And find grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. To help in time of need. Breathe. For the final word is not condemnation. The final word is redemption. Reconciliation. Grace. But before we even talk about that, we just waded back into the temptation controversy. Oh man, I told you it would come back up. And we would deal with it again this week. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And I say, yes, Lord, but one who has been tempted in all things as without sin, literally. Tempted without sin. Huh. Did Jesus Christ actually experience temptation? Well, if you go back to the verse that we saw last week, chapter 2, verse 18... The pastor says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Was Jesus tempted? Turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. By the way, when you fast that long, you get to a point where you're no longer hungry. And when you get to that point, around day 35, 36, death is imminent. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Temptation number one. Bend the rules to benefit yourself. We all know what the rules are and what you're here to do, but do something for you. Remember what Jesus said, I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for the many. I'm not here for me. But Satan said, hey, be here for you. Do something for yourself. You need a little me time. Make these stones into bread. Command this. Use your power for yourself. Bend the rules. Jesus said, you don't understand. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. We believe that's the southwest corner of the temple, looking down on all the Jerusalemites down below. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Temptation, or you might say shortcut number two, be spectacular in ministry. Do something that's glorious. Think about this. Jesus, if you jumped off the temple in front of all these people and the angels catch you, instant stardom. 
Everyone will see your glory. Everyone will follow you. It'll be marvelous. Do this thing. And what did Jesus say? On the other hand, verse 7, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. (laughs) Jesus said to him, go Satan. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13 And the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now listen, that's shortcut number three. Temptation number three. Hey man, bear the crown without the cross. If you just bow down before me right now, I'll give you all this. Was it Satan's to give? Yes, it was. Because he usurped that authority all the way back in the garden. I'll give you all of this. But what did God tell Jesus in Psalm 2? I will give you the rule over everything. God's plan was through the cross. Satan's plan was easy. Do it now. Take the shortcut. Was Jesus tempted? The Bible does not mince words on this subject. Jesus was tempted. I know that bothers some people. But He went out into the wilderness to be tempted, and it says three times the tempter came to Him and tempted Him. And I suggest to you, these would not have been temptations if they weren't tempting to Jesus. A temptation is not a temptation unless it's a temptation. I know you're thinking, I come out of here with such profound statements. (laughs) But I said this last week, and you need to hear this clearly, temptation doesn't automatically mean sin. Temptation is always before sin. It's pre-sin. Because you're tempted doesn't make you automatically a sinner. We're not asking the question, was Jesus a sinner? We're asking, was Jesus tempted? Yes, He was. And yet, the Hebrew writer says, yet without sin. Every time the temptation came, it was without sin. Jesus faced it, suffered through it, Hebrews 2.18 tells us. And yet, did not sin. Well, what is temptation really? Think about this. James chapter 1, verse 13, we read last week, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. Alright, well then explain this. Genesis 22, verse 1 says, It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Some translations say tempted Abraham, because it's the same word. And He said to him, Abraham, and He said, Here I am. So we have this picture. James says God does not tempt. But Genesis 22 says God tested Abraham. Well, so what's the deal here? It depends on how the word is applied. The word in the Greek is pyrazo. And that's the word for temptation. The word in the Hebrew is nasah. It's also the word for temptation. Both words can mean either to provoke, to tempt, to lure or to prove, to test, and to try. God does not tempt in terms of provoking someone to sin, but He does test in terms of proving their faithfulness. 
And what happened with Jesus? Satan, Satan was provoking. Satan was luring. Satan was tempting. God was testing. God was proving. The Spirit was revealing. And that's the key here. Understand with temptation or with testing, God proves, Satan provokes. It's always how it works. God tests and He proves faithfulness. Satan tempts and He provokes faithlessness and sin. Abraham, for his part, was tested by God to be proven faithful. Listen, listen. Not for God's sake. God knew what Abraham was going to do. Abraham was tested for Abraham's sake. Abraham was proven faithful so Abraham could know that he was faithful to God. That's how the proving works in your life, in my life. I love it. When God tests me, when the trials and tribulations come and I am proven faithful through it, it builds my faith. It does what God wants to do. That's a good thing. Same thing, by the way, with Job. We mentioned Job earlier. Same thing with Job. You ever, you ever pray the prayer or heard it prayed, and uh, some Christian comedians have made fun of this, but God give me a hedge of protection. I want a hedge of protection. Or you'll pray a hedge of protection over someone. You know that's not biblical. You know where it comes from? Satan talking to God. And Satan says in Job 1.10, Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. You made a hedge around Job and I can't get through hedges. <laughs> Satan says. So, God set the devil loose to have a field day with Job's hedges, cutting them down, ripping them out on every side. But while Satan sought to provoke sin in Job, God allowed it to prove faithfulness in Job. He sanctified Job through the process and for the better. Abraham, Job, you, me, God wants to prove us. He allows the tests to come in our lives so that once we get to the other side of them, we are strengthened in them and sanctified through them. Satan's just trying to lure us out, trying to provoke us into everything that he would have us do. But listen, for Abraham, you, me, Job, all the rest, there is a difference in the temptations of Jesus. And it's very simply this. Jesus was proven faithful, but not for his sake. For yours and for mine. I get proven for my own sake. Jesus was proven for us. He was tempted in all things, yet without sin. He didn't need to be proven for Himself, but we needed Him to be proven for us. And having taken on the the weakness of humanity, Jesus felt He suffered through all of the pain of the temptation of the human experience so that we would know, as we said last week, He gets us. He's got us. He will get us through. We see Jesus in all of this. And I don't know about you, but I want a Jesus who is perfect, but I want a Jesus who perfectly understands me as well. I want a God who is perfect, but I want a God who knows what it feels like to be tempted, to be tested, to go through the stuff that we go through. 
Now back to Hebrews chapter 4. Think this through. Without verses 14 through 16, verses 12 and 13 would simply leave us naked and laid bare and cut open and bleeding out on the cold hard ground. If all we had was the Word, the Word is wonderful, the Word is alive, the Word is active, and the Word is accurate. And it would cut us to pieces if that's what we were left with. If only the Word. It's too perfect. And we are too human. But again, look at verse 16. Oh, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? Because our high priest who passed through the heavens before us sympathizes, empathizes, understands us, gets us. He's done everything necessary to heal us. And so we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come before the throne. But we don't come wringing our hands and shaking in our boots and fearful and terrified and cut up because of all of our mistakes and failures and blatant sins and rebellions. We come before the throne of grace confident. Confident. Why? Because we see Jesus there. I see Jesus. You ever walk into a, a, a room, maybe you've been invited to some kind of event or organization and there's all kinds of people. And if you're anything like me, if it's people I don't know, I don't want to go. All kinds of people you don't know. And you walk in and you're like looking around and you see someone who's a dear friend. You see someone you know. You see someone that you have a deep love for. And the moment you see them, oh, good. It's gonna be, I got someone I can hang out with tonight. Instead of all these losers. <laughs> we enter the throne room of God. And in that moment of, what's this going to be? How's this going to look? What am I going to experience? We see Jesus. We see Jesus. And we have confidence. Now I'm going to tell you something else. Remember that the pastor here is primarily addressing Jewish believers. And so what does he do? Well, he reminds them of the mercy seat. When he says the throne of grace, the Jewish mind immediately would go, oh, like the mercy seat. Exodus chapter 25, verse 17, just listen to this. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. Make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat, verse 21, on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony, the law, the word, which cuts and divides. Put that in, and I'll give that to you. But you put the mercy seat on top, and there I will meet with you. Not in the ark, not in front of the ark, not about the ark somewhere else, but above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark two of the testimony, I will, listen, I will, God says, I will speak to you. Where? Above the mercy seat. That's where we meet. That's the only place that you can meet with me. Because my word without mercy will slice you into ribbons. But my word, which brings you to mercy... Well, now this is a completely new day. The people of Israel, they had the mercy seat. 
But even with the mercy seat and the appearance of God to meet with and to speak to the people, they still had to have the high priest. They still needed the mediator, the go-between. They still couldn't quite see God, not face to face. They couldn't communicate with Him that way. Only Moses did. So there's still that distance. But we have the throne of grace. Not like the mercy seat. We have, yes, the sharp two-edged sword of the Word, but we have the sword and the throne. Truth and grace. Verses 12 and 13 and verses 14 through 16. Which is why we always need to read everything that we read and study in the context of the meaning. You pull verses 12 and 13 out and all you can do is beat someone up with them. Because the Word is too perfect. But the law was given through Moses, John 1.17. Grace and truth, verses 12 through 16, were given through Jesus Christ. Realized in Him. And so we come to the throne of grace to receive mercy, which again is not getting what we deserve, the mercy of God. I'm not going to give you the payment that you deserve for your sins. And we receive grace, which is something we could never deserve. And we get that because He's there. It's Jesus. By the way, did you know a priest could not sit on the throne? And a king could not perform the duties of the priest. But Jesus is both our King of kings and He is our great high priest and He became perfectly and eternally suited for both positions. Zechariah 6.13 He who will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne, He will be a priest on His throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices of king and of priest. He's both and He's the one seated on the throne. And we look and again, there He is. We see Him. We, we see the eyes of grace. There's a song we sing. I think, did we sing it this morning? Or last week? I can't remember. I'm of the older generation. <laughs> There's a song we sing where we talk about, I see the look in his eyes. Every time we see that, I get a lump in my throat because we have two options with the look in his eyes as we see Jesus there on the throne of grace. You know what? On the night of his betrayal, he turned and he looked at Peter. Peter saw the look in his eyes. And we will see the look in his eyes. What was the look in his eyes when he saw Peter in the midst of his betrayal? I suggest to you it was grace. Not judgment. And I suggest to you that's why Peter went out and wept. Because he saw grace. We now approach the throne of grace with confidence because it's Him. Because it's Jesus. And Revelation 21 verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things New, And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. 